Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us once again, we have our TV critic, Sonia Soraya. Hi. Sonia, we are bringing in, we we watch a lot of television around here. Joanna is our foremost Westworld and all things complicated on television expert. But we, we needed some backup because we have a lot of Emmy stuff to talk about. Uh, this is the last episode that we are recording that's kind of like a news base before the Emmy nominations are announced in July. Uh, so we wanted to basically take the opportunity to talk about what we're hoping to see on the nominations list. It's uh, The voting has already ended by the time you're going to hear this episode, so it's kind of too late to stump for those Emmy voters who may be listening. Um but we just wanted to kind of set the idea of what we'll be rooting for. Uh, the nominations are announced at a sane hour, like noon uh, Eastern time, which is great. So we'll all be awake as we watch our hearts get broken or not. Um, so I wanted to just go kind of go around the table and let us stump for whoever we want to stump for. And uh, Joanna, I, I don't know. I d- I've decided we're going to start with you. Who do you want to start stumping for first? Oh, this is so fun. Okay, then I get to plant my flag on something maybe other, <laughs> other people might pick up. Um, I'm going to cheat. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Killing Eve and the three women associated with Killing Eve, which is like the co-leads, Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer, and then the showrunner writer Phoebe Waller Bridge. I would like to strong see, start. Strong I would, start. <laughs> I would like to see all of those women and that show get a nomination. Um I think Sandra feels like a pretty, pretty solid bet at this point. Um I think Phoebe with her bench of work on like Fleabag and Crashing, I think people are just sort of recognizing her. And is the best part of solo. And is the best part of solo. I think people are recognizing her for the genius that she is. The only person I'm a little worried about is Jody, but like it would be insane to leave her off because her her performance is so like chameleonic and has like this emotional profundity to it. So um, I know it's a genre show. I know it's BBC America, which has like, you know, not the strongest history at the Emmys, though Orphan Black obviously got in there. But I want all of those things nominated, please. Thank you. A couple things about this. One, the best part of Solo is Tandy Newton. <laughs> and two, what about Fiona Shaw? Is Solo Westworld? <laughs> so, yeah, yes. Solo is Westworld. Now. I think I need to look up whether or not Fiona Shaw uh, would be in like guest because I would because I think you would have to put like Sandra Owen leading and Jodie Comer in supporting, even though that's like s- silly category fraud to introduce Fiona Shaw, who is amazing and i ran into her in an elevator at tca and i was too shy to say anything and i'm not usually too shy to say things to people but i love fiona shaw we've talked about three men and a little lady i believe before um but (laughs) at least richard and i have i think but anyway um the uh, yeah sure why not If, if if everyone can get nominated then yes but if it comes at the expense of one of the other women then i would i would wait another year for fiona shaw can i ask a a dumb question that i should have asked weeks ago where can i watch killing eve like if it's not like just happened to be on BBC America. Like, do they have an app? Is it on Hulu? What? Where do I? Where do I catch up? They do have an app, but you ha- you have to sign in with your cable provider. So you do okay. have to have cable. I think I'm an old enough millennial that I still have cable, so I feel like this is available to me. Um, extremely same. Um, and <laughs> the app is pretty good. Um, it does it does have commercials, but the commercials are short. Also, most of the commercials are just commercials for Killing Eve. So <laughs> they do have a deal with Hulu, so that it will be streaming on Hulu later this year. If you want, yes, to wait I a did. Little I, while. I did see that. No, I'm not, I need to know what everyone was talking about two months ago. That's that's my level of being caught up is uh, just a month <laughs> or two behind the beat. Okay, so Katie, I'm in the same boat because I, for a variety of reasons, I only just started watching Killing Eve. Killing Eve is the only thing about 2018 that has lived up to the hype. Nice. That is what I'm going to say. All right. Okay. Um, all right, Sonia, that means that you are going to pick something next. Tell me what else lived up to the hype and that you want to see win an Emmy. Oh, my God. Okay, so there's so many things that I want to see nominated that probably won't be nominated. Um, so I'm going to, I guess I'll root for, um, oh my God, I don't know which way, I don't even know which way to go. Okay, why don't I start with talking about Alias Grace, um, which is a Netflix miniseries um, that is Canadian. Um, I really think that the lead, Sarah Gaydon, is was just phenomenal. And I, I really think that not enough people saw it, but... If she could get a Best Actress nomination, I would be so excited. Sonia, you just wrote a piece about the the kind of conclusion of that miniseries, which is a big spoiler. Um, so maybe we shouldn't go into too much detail on it. But anyway, if, if people have watched the show, you they should read your piece because it's, uh, it's such a fascinating moment in that show. There's another Sarah involved, Sarah Polly, who, mm-hmm. who wrote the uh, the show. 
did you think she has a better chance of could she get a writing nomination like, oh yeah, for sure yeah. I never know how like the adaptation stuff like works with them she adapted the Margaret Atwood novel and she's familiar a fil- more familiar name Sarah Gaddon has been in a couple of David Cronenberg movies which I learned recently um, but I don't think that like people really know who she is in the states she's kind of a Canadian like artist Sarah Polly people know who she is and I think that although Sarah Polly is also there. deeply deeply Canadian which is one of the many things I like about <laughs> this uh, series the series is so Canadian it's amazing it's like confusing how Canadian it is there's all of this like gauzy Ontario sunshine and I don't know where Ontario is <laughs> it's got like these slings and arrows cast members and Anna Paquin's in it and you're just like oh deep deep bench of Canadian actors but uh Sarah Sarah Gaiden like impressed me so much in Alias Grace, especially like there's this one shot early on where she kind of looks at the camera and I got chills down my spine. And then mm-hmm. I immediately ran to IMDb to see where I had seen her before. And I had just seen her in the film Indignation. And she's really good in that, but she's so transformed. Um, you know, I just used chameleonic to describe Jodie Comer, so it feels like a cheat to use it again. But like, she is like she slips in and out of these various characterizations, these various masks that she wears in Alias Grace. It's a really impressive performance. So I, I back that play. One of the things I really enjoyed about interviewing her was getting <laughs> she's like really obsessive with preparing for roles, which I think is how she manages to be so chameleonic to use the word again. But uh, the stuff she talks about, the stuff it's in the piece too, but. She she like read the book multiple times, read the script multiple times. She ended up doing the audiobook for it too. She like lived inside this this text, this character for like a year and a half. She said it was the hardest job she'd ever done. Um, but it comes through so well that I think she thinks it was worth it too. Um, it was really cool to to hear that from her. All right, Richard, your turn. Who do you want to stump for? I'm going to pretend that it's like 10 or 12 years ago and like big network shows are still sort of in the mix. Um, there's a show that I really like called Good Girls um, that was on NBC. It just it did get renewed about with uh, kind of like a like a Breaking Bad, you know, suburban people who get involved in crime. Um, but one of the suburban people getting involved in crime is played by Retta. And I think she would be a fantastic supporting actress nominee. Uh, she's so good on the show, not just funny like she was in Parks and Rec. There's like a lot of drama to that to it, and she's spectacular at all of it. So um, she, hers was one of my favorite performances of this TV year. Her daughter is sick, right? In the show, her daughter has something, yeah, um, and that's kind of so her emotional core. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she also has this like interesting relationship with her husband, who started who's training to be a cop, and she's you know learning how to do crime and so there's conflict there um and they have a really great relationship that's very naturally staged um yeah so i think i mean everyone's great in the show but she stands out oh one of my favorite scenes i only watched a couple of episodes and i'm a little baffled by why you like it but it's fine like i'm just a little confused (laughs) um but the the one of the scenes that really got me was like early on when retta uses her like ill got money to fund something and then someone else in her congregation takes credit for it and she has to like let it happen. And I thought that that was like a really like spectacular yeah. moment, like yeah. the way that she, you know, she's like struggling with how to take credit or not take credit. And she has to be in this communal space. It was interesting. Yeah, because she as Donna on um, Parks and Rec, she kind of had like a one sort of mode or sort of like motif that she was sort of because she wasn't one of the biggest characters. But in this, you get to see her do stuff like that. That's really like nuanced and complex. And um, yeah, it's just like a really great performance and she can sing and she doesn't do much singing on the show but she can have they done an emmy push good girls because i haven't I seen so. it yeah, yeah. okay yeah. just curious it's not gonna happen yeah i yeah, know i i feel like even the renewal was a surprise though i'm excited because i love you know may whitman and christina Hendricks and everyone kind of involved with the show and i'm really hoping that i'm really happy to hear that you like it so much richard that makes me want to give it more of a try and i'm hoping that um whatever like bumpiness there might have been in the first season they can like really drill into what makes it good and and have a better second season okay um i'm gonna take my turn and uh bring up someone who i also wrote about in our uh, anatomy of a character series which hopefully you've been reading on vf.com but i uh, spoke to betty gilpin who plays debbie on glow who yes is one of my just like absolute favorite tv characters ever i think and it definitely has something to do with the fact that when glow premiered i had an almost one-year-old child and 
in the pilot episode where Debbie walks into the wrestling ring to confront her friend Ruth, who she's found out is cheating on her, is having an affair with her husband, uh, and she's screaming just like the worst curse words you can imagine and holding this baby on her hip at the same time. And that contrast just delighted me to no end. And Betty Gilpin is genius at playing Debbie, and then she's just so smart. Like this piece that I wrote, she had so many great quotes that I just wanted to keep in where she just spoke so like vividly about what being an actress is and like who her character is. And she wrote this piece in the New York Times that's about how she renovated a house with her husband. And it's also incredibly written. Like, I really hope she gets a book deal on top of an Emmy nomination. Um, I think Glow is going to do pretty well for itself. Like, I think Alison Brie and Mark Maron are both pretty well positioned for a nomination. And as far as I know, uh, Betty Gilpin would be eligible in Supporting Actress, which is another one of those category fraud Emmy things that I will accept if it means she can get in there. Because um, I'm just obsessed with her. And I'm really excited to see what she does in season two. Yeah, I saw her on some talk show recently and I was like, oh, she's very smart and funny. Like, um, she just seems like a very, like, intriguing person. Um, and, and and I'm not the biggest Glow fan, but she's definitely was my favorite part of the episodes I watched. No, I mean, she's like a discovery in those episodes because I didn't know who she was going in. I, I feel like the light and energy of the show gathers around her in in a really spectacular way. I said spectacular already in this podcast. <laughs> Goddamn. Anyway. Chameleonic and spectacular. Um, <laughs> I had just sort of seen her. She was in a couple episodes of American Gods, which was a, a bumpy show, and she's just spectacular in it. Um, Wait, and who was she in American Gods? She played like her best friend, like the dad wife's best friend, like who was married to Dane Cook, who cheated with Emily Browning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, all right. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and she's so she's so good and so funny in the in those episodes. And I was like, who is this person? I've never seen her. And then I saw that she was in Glow. And Glow also, I agree with Richard, like did not work at all for me. And but but as I was watching it, I was like, uh, if this were the Betty Gilpin show, <laughs> I would watch it all day long because I love her in it. And I, um, I, I agree with you, Katie, like, love, love for her above anyone else yay okay well back to you joanna uh who do you want to talk about next um i'm deciding if i should stay on brand or not i'm gonna i'm gonna branch out from brand and um and i'm gonna say uh logan browning who is the lead of netflix's dear white people um yes is a show that like everyone who watches loves but i feel like doesn't stay in the conversation after like your weekend binge and i don't know why because it deals with such like interesting and relevant um issues and all the performances are good and it's really like smart and funny and logan you know carries like it's a great huge ensemble cast and each episode usually focuses on a different character that being said logan browning is the far and away star of that show and she is like just shines so brightly and she had a lot of really uh you know dark and emotional stuff to play uh, along with some of her smart quippy stuff this season and so i would i would love to see her recognized for that do we think that dear white people has like a shot in general i really i couldn't decide because I, I i put it on my list just kind of in general and i was thinking specifically of the episode directed by kimberly pierce the director of boys don't cry who directed the coco episode if you remember that one yeah so um good. which is so great once you get into directing categories especially it becomes really hard for me but it does feel like dear white people is just constantly like appreciated but not enough in these situations and i don't really know why so i'm saying it doesn't linger in the conversation and i and i'm confused by it i mean i think that partly it's because it's released all at once like i think that those half hour episodes they're so well done and if you had a little bit more time to digest each one maybe you'd be still chewing on it i don't know if that makes sense but like i think that it just goes by like this three and a half hour like really gorgeous movie or, or something like that you know you you watch it all at once and then and then it's just gone. I, I think that like the it's almost too complete to to linger. Yeah. Well, we'll keep stumping for it. It's coming back for season three. They just announced in a, a video with Giancarlo Esposito, which was delightful if you didn't see it. So we'll we'll keep doing our part. Um, okay, Sonia, you're next. So Better Things on FX debuted a while ago, um, and I think that when it came out, a lot of people were talking about it. Um, the The second season was really fantastic. I thought. So Pamela Adlon, who's the showrunner and directed every episode and is the star of the show, um, is kind of, you know, she's the triple threat behind behind it. Um, I think that at the I hope that she gets honored for what she's done with this, because I do think that honestly, Better Things is not exactly for me all the time. But at the same time, I appreciate how it is really the only voice 
of a middle-aged parent, a middle-aged mom on TV that feels like so fresh and interesting. It's it's almost I mean, the funny thing is it's sort of like family sitcom, like like broadcast sitcom material, but uh, it's handled in such a different way. And it's so much sharper edged, but also so much sweeter. Um it would just be so I think it would just be really cool uh, for her um, and also like to boost this show, which I think is like really interesting and is kind of, you know, FX's brand is often a little bit broier um, than than like something like Better Things. And I think Better Things happened on FX because of Pamela Avalon's uh, collaboration with Louis C.K. So, of course, that's a much more complicated thing now Um but it's her show, and I hope that it gets a chance to shine. You know, when FX sort of scrubbed Louis C.K. from its, you know, records, basically, um, I I did talk to a bunch of people over there and to to Pamela and what everyone told me, and you know, they have their own agenda in saying so, certainly. But they were like, "This is her show." Like Louis C.K. helped her create it. I think he worked pretty closely with her in the first season, but in the second season, like it is her show and her story and he has co-writing credits on some of the episodes but like um you know when she was talking to me she was talking to me a little bit about being um a female director and how even though she is the she is the boss she is the showrunner she is the director and she was talking about how like men on her staff still undermine her and uh how how frustrating it is but like so so the fact that like Pamela Adlon of all people and I know like she's close with Louis CK there's no like there's no innocence in all of this but like for for this show to be tarnished by the CK-ness is 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 a real crusher because it has such uh, important, I think, things to say and an important perspective to share. There's a thread in this season where the oldest daughter, uh, Max, who's 17, um, is dating like a much older man. And Pam, uh, Pamela Avalon's character, Sam, has to like dig into uh, why this might be not safe or, or uncomfortable for her daughter who's like very rebellious and I mean it, it digs I, I mean it digs into this it digs into some of the things that you know some of the some of the more fraught discussion topics of me too um, I, I I also think for what it's worth that Avalon's spoken really um, in, in in genuine and and thoughtful ways about her relationship with Louis C.K. too. Um, so I, uh, you know, I I don't think that she's um, not mindful of of what it all means. So anyway, I, I hope she's got a shot at the very least. Uh, okay, Richard, who's your next one? I want to stump for the show in general, Barry on HBO, which I think was a little overlooked. Uh, the comedy about Bill Hader playing a hitman who goes to L.A. for a job and discovers that he like wants to be an actor um really dark comedy you know increasingly dark as the season goes along and then ending with a really shattering and really really well done finale um including a final two scenes that are just really extraordinary Uh, and and his partner in that scene is the great um uh what's her name paula newsom uh is the great paula newsom um and she's spectacular in the whole season and for reasons I don't want to spoil she could be you know very integral to the plot uh, by the end so she's great and then I have to say I'm a little biased because I used to have a crush on him when we were in high school well he didn't go to the same high school but my friend did theater with him um, Anthony Kerrigan who plays NoHo Hank the, um, the one one of the gangsters in it gangster with a heart of gold um, I once stuck my hand up his shirt at a party <laughs> when we were 16 and so now I want him to get nominated for an Emmy <laughs> I should say that the back half of this episode, we're going to have an interview that Mike Hogan did with Bill Hader about the season of Barry. Perfect. And I totally agree that um, it's it seems like it seems like it's been appreciated, but maybe not as ballyhooed as it should be because it's so good. And I think Bill Hader in particular is amazing on it. Like I've always thought he had this kind of depth in his acting that he's you know he's so funny. He's been has such a great run in SNL that it's kind of easy to see that. But he's just he's so good at this like wounded and really lost and. Uh, often angry character there's this he does so much within the course of Barry and he also is kind of the, the guiding creative force behind the show so I figure at some point he'll get a nomination for one of the roles he had on that show and something I like about it is that it's not like oh a comedian being serious in the way that we often see that where it's like too emotive or too blank and sort of you know it, it can go either way like he finds just the right sort of mix of comedy and seriousness and then as the season goes on you realize that he's been doing this con job on this the whole time and you're like, oh wait, he's a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And we but we kind of have been endeared to him. So it's just a really it, it's that's a that's a tricky kind of needle to thread and I think he does it very well. And to add to that that he directed three episodes and wrote a lot, like it's pretty impressive and I think is the kind of show 
kind of work that is deserving of, you know, awards recognition. You know, a lot of comedy, especially now, comes out of self-awareness. And I think what's interesting about Bill Hader's character, like Barry, is that he's like not self-aware in the show. Like he's sort of this deluded hitman slash deluded actor. Um, and uh, it is sort of a con because it's ignorance. Like, I don't know. I think that's like kind of fun. It's It feels like a little bit of a throwback in some ways. Um you know, I feel like the HBO shows, because so many people in the Academy watch them, they just end up getting these nominations, even though I don't see the, <laughs> the campaign or the traction. So maybe we'll see him being be nominated. Um, OK, my turn now. And I wanted to jump back to network television, that old dinosaur for a minute and uh, talk about The Good Place, which I think is a show that uh, all of us watch. Um, it, it does feel like you could nominate it for just about anything in the comedy categories. And I feel like if Kristen Bell and Ted Danson aren't necessarily like front runners or they're famous, they're, they would get the attention. But I really wanted to stump for pretty much any of the supporting players in the cast. You've got Darcy Carden, who plays Janet, who might, I mean, is maybe the flashiest character because uh, she's a robot and then she's not a robot. And she goes through a really interesting transformation in the second season. Wait, is, is the good place also Westworld? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is both is and is not a robot. Uh, and everything is Westworld. Um, she's amazing. I, I did a brief piece on her on VF.com it's last so week as well. It's so good. It's she, so good. She is a delight. Um, but then you've got Jamila Jamil and Manny Jacinto and William Jackson Harper who play kind of the other three humans who have been tortured in this good place slash bad place. I don't know. There's there's so many people to choose from. Even Maya Rudolph is a guest actor for her playing the judge because she's so funny. Um, I just, any of those people popping up would make me really happy. Ted Danson will be competing against, well, I don't know if he would really get a lead actor nomination for Curb Your Enthusiasm, but he isn't that season two. I really hope he gets nominated for The Good Place. Joanna, back to you. Oh, I'm going to hop right back on my brand. Uh, since we've been talking around Westworld, I will talk uh, specifically about one performance on Westworld. I think there's a lot of uh, great performances we could single out, but I want to talk about one specifically that uh, I think requires a lot more <laughs> complicated nuance than maybe uh, is on the surface, which is Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright is obviously like not an under the radar actor on Westworld, but um, I, you know, I talked to him and Lisa Joy and uh, executive producer on the show about the crazy, almost like calculus, calculus uh, that he has to do in both this season and last season. Last season, he had to play two different characters, but not let us realize that there were two different characters. But then once you rewatch the show, you can tell it's two different characters. And then he had to do that. I mean, hopefully without spoiling too much. No, it's, I don't think it's fine. He had to do that again this season, but then he had to like double fake you out on what it's like, it's crazy what he has to do in order to pull this off. And, um, Evan Rachel Wood, I think, has called Westworld the acting Olympics, you know, because she gets to inhabit like three or four different personas at any given time, but she never has to like fool the audience as to what she's doing. And so this extra layer that Jeffrey Wright is continually asked to do. And um, I got this one great story from the executive producer about how they, they shot this one scene and Jeffrey had no lines, but like everyone working on the show was confused about when it was taking place, which is not surprising. Like the director of the episode didn't know when it was. None of the actors like could really like figure out when it was happening. So Jeffrey Wright calls uh, the co-creator Jonah Nolan and he's like, hey, hey, Jonah, when when is this taking place? And Jonah's like, oh, it's after this, but before this. And he's like, oh, okay. And he hangs up the phone, has no lines in the episode, but like completely changes his performance based on that, according to this director. And so I'm like, that's the kind of like ninja acting shit that Jeffrey Wright is doing that we we don't even know about. We can't know because like we're so disoriented. But it 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 uh it rewards a rewatch because everyone has time to rewatch 20 hours of television to see just like the various degrees of nuance he does to play these different um, but overlapping characters. I'm so glad you mentioned him because I think that he's like the unsung hero of that show. Um, you know, just because like some he doesn't get to do quite as many sort of like badass or gifable things, although maybe that's changed. But um, especially in season two, I, I feel like they they shifted him sort of towards the center of the story. Like he's he's kind of the lens through which you see season two. Um and he's he's amazing. I mean, I think that the fact that he is able to play the character that is both like the most human android and the most robot human is like is really cool. Uh, Richard, you've also been deep in Westworld this season doing the podcast with Joanna. Is there anyone else from Westworld you want to uh, see recognized? Yeah, I mean, everyone's so good. I mentioned Tandy Newton. Um, I, I think that Jeffrey Wright clearly stands out. Uh, 
although, you know, something that Joanna and I talked a lot about on our other podcast, Still Watching, where we covered the second season of the show, is that Anthony Hopkins, he returns for a couple episodes in season two, um, which we didn't think he was going to. And man, can he sell that language? <laughs> I mean, it's like it was, I mean, it's just like it, it's built for him, this kind of weird, recursive, looping poetry that doesn't make sense but then does make sense and you know and he but he just like i don't know if he has any idea any idea what he's saying like maybe he's just like doing it you know but anyway he 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 does provide this kind of like spiritual i don't know center to the show in a way so i think he's great and then you know he he's not in it much but i like ben barnes he's cute so i wouldn't mind seeing him <laughs> once, once again ben barnes. ben barnes is the best part of the finale let's he's great like, in the finale let's be clear he's very good in the finale. and yes. also uh we talked about this i think um whenever it is we were talking about guest uh, the guest category yeah last week but zon mclaren and like i just i'm just gonna throw that back out into the oh, wind absolutely and he would be the the first native american actor uh, uh, nominated i believe what wow, like ever in any category? I mean, it, it, I, I'm acting super surprised. It shouldn't be that surprising, but it still is kind of shocking. I think that, like, something that he really kind of shone a light on is just how, like, these the stories of Native American people have really not been told by Native Americans. Yeah, so this is what it says. Uh, this is according to Gold Derby. Zon McLarnon could make Emmy history as the first Native American actor nominated for a series. Heesh. That's appalling. It is. I mean, this is... Uh, this, <laughs> We're, we're America, the home of the Western. And the home of the Native people who were here first. Not to mention that he definitely deserved it for Fargo season two as well. So, like, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, yeah, give that guy a nomination and then go ahead, give him the statue too while you're at it. Yeah, let's do it. Shall I pick that up? Yes, go for it. Well, the funny thing about talking about Zal McLernan is it makes me think about how Michael Horse uh, during the original run of Twin Peaks should totally have cornered that uh best supporting actor nomination because he's amazing i think he's amazing and he was amazing in the reboot and i know that not everyone feels about the reboot the way that i do (laughs) me and my editor got into a heated but mostly good-natured argument about it on slack in front of everybody uh yesterday um i think at the very least kyle mclaughlin for twin peaks would just be I mean, the, what he's doing, and it's actually similar to, to Jeffrey Wright in Westworld, too, because one of the things that's so weird about Twin Peaks The Return um, is that Cooper, Dale Cooper, is just one of the characters that Kyle MacLachlan's playing. And uh, I, I spoke to him uh, uh, a couple of times over, you know, the publicity tour for this, and he he calls them variations, uh, the different like the sort of parallel universe versions of this character or like the Dougie Jones character, which was like instantly like a classic meme, (laughs) classic meme fodder. Um, And then, you know, at the very end, he turns into this guy named Richard who like deep fries guns in a diner. um, And then like, it seems to be trapped in, in a world he doesn't understand. I, I think he just really makes it work in a way that like that, series probably shouldn't work otherwise and i i sort of feel like it's dropped a little bit off of the critical conversation but i just think that he deserves that nomination i um you can't see my notes here but it says jeffrey wright slash kyle mclaughlin <laughs> because, because it's totally true they're like they're both up there for playing like a trio basically of character or, or yeah. more in the case of kyle mclaughlin um and the genius thing about what he did with with like the dougie jones thing is because like the i i agree with you i love the return i was obsessed with it but like twin peaks fans both old and new i think we're really excited to watch Dale Cooper again and the, and the dirty trick that David Lynch played has made us wait so long for Dale Cooper to come back. And so I think at what was interesting is people at first were resenting the fact that Kyle McLaughlin was playing like these two other characters, this evil Mr. C and this, you know, adult Dougie Jones. And then Dougie Jones became this like folk hero of the fandom and everyone just like loved him. And, and like by the time Dale Cooper came back, you were excited, but like you didn't mind Dougie Jones anymore. And that's just like a testament to this incredible warmth and like beauty that Kyle McLaughlin brought to this truly bizarre uh, role that he was asked to play. And, uh, you know, I just, I love Kyle so much. And I, I love that this is what they did with this, like, yo, we're expecting to see this, this like cult TV character of the 90s return and like, oh, all this talk about recursive, like nostalgia and stuff like that. David's just like, no, you don't get that. Well, that's not what I'm giving you. Are you kidding me? You're getting this. So yeah, Kyle, definitely. And I think David too. Come on, like, 
David Lynch. Well, I never. I'm mad at him. him. I know everyone's mad at him right now. So I'm uh, I'm mad at him because as literally as we're recording this, it just happened yesterday. He said something construably nice about Donald Trump, and then Donald Trump tweeted about it. And so now I'm mad at David Lynch. So whatever the Academy, you don't have to nominate him on my behalf. I miss it when David Lynch did like daily weather reports on Twitter. That was that was like original Twitter before it was a nightmare. Uh, I wish we could all go back to that. Wait, I have the word Trump ban uh, muted on Twitter. He, he actually, I don't, I never see his tweets. Uh, he tweeted about David Lynch. He did. Oh, he tweeted the Breitbart, like the Breitbart aggregated the oh. original interview, and he quoted it and was like. Just the part where David Lynch says something like, it might turn out that Trump is our greatest president or something like right. that. Donald Trump is a big Lynch fan, obviously. Big fan of Eraserhead in particular. Yeah. 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 But that's yeah. like, that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm both mad that David Lynch said that, but also mad. I mean, I know this is not what this podcast is about, but like, I'm also mad that that quote is being taken so out of context because right. like what he was saying is that the reason why he might be the greatest is because he exposes like the government for the shambles that it is and like how they're all children. Like it was a, it was an insult, really. Yeah, and people are just yeah. plucking out this one part and making it seem like David Lynch is just like Donald Trump might be the greatest president ever, as if he's some sort of like red hat MAGA, like whatever, and he's not. Um, so like I'm a little annoyed that he gave Trump that soundbite. Like just don't give Trump soundbites. But uh, at the same time, I'm also annoyed that the quote's being taken out of context because of course David Lynch doesn't think Donald Trump is great. Like come on, I, I want I want Trump to watch Wild at Heart as a result of this. Like just, just to, just to see what it's all about. It could change his life. Um, okay, Richard, I believe you're up. Oh well, speaking of political horror, I I don't know if I'm the last one sticking with this show, but I I Homeland had a really great season this year. Um, they finally got well, they got past the Brody stuff years ago, but they finally got past this sort of. I mean, frankly, anti-Muslim hysteria and sort of paranoia that the show had for so many seasons that, you know, justifiably earned it a lot of criticism. And now this 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 most recent year, they dealt with maybe more justifiable Russian paranoia um, and very timely stuff like that. And Claire Danes, as ever, is great. And Elizabeth Marvel as the embattled president uh, is spectacular. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I The show, you know, it's, it's it's long in the tooth. People are sort of tired of it. It's won plenty of awards. It probably doesn't need anything. But um, it, I think that it is worthy of recognition for a season that was messy, but also, um, you know, sort of eerily not only timely, but prescient. I mean, it almost like foretold a few things. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's 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 good television. Um, okay. I think I'm going to take the last spot since we obviously could go on forever. Um, and I'm going to be the one to talk about The Crown. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you mentioned The Crown. <laughs> I, I don't think it'll have any trouble getting nominated. Um, but I we talked about him last week. But I just really want Matthew Good to get nominated for playing Lord Snowden because he's so good. He's such a breath of fresh air and this, like, kind of stuffy, crazy family. Um, he's good in everything. And I feel like he's had one of those weird careers where he's, like, consistently just pushed in the wrong direction and... He's not going to be on the next season, which is a bummer. Um, so, yeah, nominate Matthew Good and then um, obviously nominate Claire Foy. Um, as, as, as told by that um, that weird for your consideration billboard that went viral where it's like, this is your last chance to see Claire Foy. Give her an Emmy nomination. Wow. And then we're and then we're gonna murder. Her. Yeah, yeah, or else. <laughs> Claire Foy as Queen Elizabeth is one of my favorite roles. She was nominated last year, but I think that she deserves that that Emmy. Um, and I know that Carrie Russell in the last season of The Americans is another kind of like, oh, she deserves that Emmy too. Um, but I think it should go to Claire Foy. And also for Foy, she should win because she's potentially sort of, you know how, I mean, I've talked about it a bunch of times, but Kate Blanchett did Streetcar in Sydney and then around the world and then did um, Blue Jasmine and is still a little bit Blanche Dubois, like to this day. Like, I feel like Elizabeth is going to be in Claire Foy for a long time. <laughs> so for that, a level of commitment to her craft. I mean, you saw, I don't know if anyone saw Unsane, the Steven Soderbergh movie that Claire Foy was in. She's great in it, but she's doing this American accent. But then every other sentence, you're like, Elizabeth, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. So I just think that that level of commitment deserves recognition. She is about to play Elizabeth Salander, which is probably as far as you can get away from the Queen. True. So maybe that'll help shake it out. I don't know. Elizabeth, Lizbeth, it's still Elizabeth. <laughs> um, can we lightning round the rest of our lists, Katie? Yes. Just like really quickly. Yeah, let's do it. All right. 
I just want to knock out Rita Moreno for One Day at a Time. Yep. Yes. Actress. Amazing. And uh, my boy, Nicola Costa-Waldo, uh, is the performance from Game of Thrones that I would stump for. I would go with Tracy Morgan for The Last OG, Tiffany Haddish for The Last OG, um, and then every single person involved top to bottom with high maintenance. Yes. Lee pays Carrie Bechet and Mackenzie Davis for Halt and Catch Fire. Halt and Catch Fire will not get nominated for anything, but I'll try. Um, Issa Rae, Insecure. It's a really good show. Uh, one day at a time, in addition to Rita Moreno, Justine Machado, and Norman Lear, dude. <laughs> um, and then, uh, of course, American Vandal and the Americans, which I think both in different ways deserve their shot. Oh, my God. I can't believe I forgot to bring up American Vandal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the greatest Peabody award-winning American Vandal. Yes. And uh, Blue Planet 2, which probably will get nominated, actually. But it was really, really good, guys. Um, I just had one last thing on my list in addition to co-signing love what you guys said. And I just wanted to bring up The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I also don't think will have a hard time getting nominated. I think Rachel Brosnahan's a shoe in But Tony Shalhoub is so good on that show as her dad. And he just won a Tony. And he's Tony Shalhoub. He's won, like, I don't even know how many Emmys. So I, like, I don't think he needs the help. But he's, you know, he's not at the top of all the Gold Derby lists. So... I'm just, I will be excited for that nomination. He's a familiar Emmy's face, but it won't just be a default nomination. We have too many people and not enough awards. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So now we're going to share the interview that Mike Hogan did with Bill Hader, who is the executive producer, co-creator, and star, and sometimes director of the HBO series Barry, which we've talked about as one of the outstanding comedies from the previous season. So let's listen to Mike talk to Bill. So thank you, Bill, for joining us today uh, and being on our podcast. Um, you know, it's well known that you are a, a film buff, that you uh, like your cr- Criterion collection and so on. Are you an awards guy? We're, this is an awards podcast. Are you like, do you care about the Oscars? Do you, the history, all that stuff? I, I did for when I was younger. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I remember there was a book called Alternate Oscars, that um, had a cut co- on the cover. It was uh, Marlon Brando and Bob Hope, like wrestling over an Oscar. Um, <laughs> and I remember that book was really fascinating because it had the movies that this one critic thought should have won and who should have won best actor and actress and stuff. And, you know, it's where I discovered, like, I remember he, he had a cul-de-sac, uh, Polanski's cul-de-sac was like, should have won best picture in like 1966 or, you know, instead of, you know, Man for All Seasons or whatever. And I was like, oh, wow, what is this movie? You know what I mean? And so it kind of gave me a bigger movie knowledge. So I think I was always interested in it in terms of what to see. Yeah. But I I didn't really watch it or anything like that. Do you ever play that game now? Like, you know, why the heck is this movie the one everyone's talking about? It should be X that's totally out of the conversation. I, yeah, I mean, we would do that when we were younger. But the things that we always liked was like, now that I'm older, I'm, I totally get why people weren't talking about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that you're like, oh, yeah, that thing was crazy. Yeah. I had a similar experience where when I was younger, I thought the Oscars were just ridiculously out of touch. And I don't know if now I think I'm just probably too old to really care uh, enough about. Yeah, especially, you know what else, you know what else it is, is that it was really interesting when I grew up in Oklahoma, 
But then when you live in LA and you see the for your consideration billboards everywhere, you do get a bit like just immune to it. You're like, oh yeah, that's happening. Right, right, right. It's a big business. It's like seeing Christmas decorations. You're like, oh, it's that time of year. And and then the Emmys are actually sort of rising to the level of the Oscars in terms of insanity for your consideration insanity, in case you've noticed. Yeah, no, I have. Because you've been nominated 10 times, am I right? And you won for- I have? I counted on IMDb. Oh, I didn't. I don't know. I didn't know that. You're telling me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You're like the Jack Nicholson of the Emmys. Oh no, I don't. I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's funny that you say that. I I did win one for South Park, but I remember I landed in New York. My publicist texted me and was like, "Hey, I think you just won an Emmy for writing on South Park." I went, "I did." <laughs> <laughs> and okay. then an Emmy showed up in the mail and I was like, oh, wow. So you didn't you didn't get to go up and collect it or anything at a podium? No, no, no. I think Matt and Trey, you know what? But Matt and Trey did all the work on that thing. I was in the room laughing and contributing a little bit. If anything on South Park won an award, it's because of their work. I was just, they were nice enough to put my name on it because I was around, you know. Do you have a favorite moment from the Emmys that you have been to, the shows? I remember, when I remember Ellen Bernstein was in front of us, I remember when they were announcing the nominees, I just remember her handing her purse to her date, meaning like she knew she was going to win. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And did she? And she did, yeah. I was like, that is gangster right there, man. That is a baller. She was like, hold this. I was like, damn. Yeah, because you don't want to you don't want to do that and then not get it. I mean, that's really that's that's pretty bad. It was the uh, awards equivalent of walking away from an explosion, you know, in slow motion. It was just kind of like I'm too badass for this, but I just went, wow, man, that is, oh man, I better not look her in the eye. That is badass. And what about the? Have you been to the Oscars? I know you've been to the Oscar party, the Vanity Fair party. No, I, I've never been to the actual Oscars. No. Did you have fun at the Vanity Fair party? Oh yeah, I've gone to that a couple of times. I think I've been to that three or four times, and that's always fun. It is a bit. It's so funny that party because it is kind of like high school. It's like all the comedy people hang out in one area. Yes. All yeah. the drama people hang out in another way. All the other the the massive movie stars are off in some secret area that we're not really privy to. <laughs> there's no secret area. I can tell you, there's not. But yeah, I, I, I know there's sort of... It always seems that way where you're kind of like... The next morning, you're like, whoa, there's a picture of George Clooney was there? I didn't see him. I guess I wasn't invited to that. <laughs> it is a bit like high school, don't you think? Where it's like... And then there'll be those couple of people who are brave enough to kind of go over to the other side and be like, I'm going to go talk to Jeremy Irons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, because I'm always curious how that works, because is it hard to kind of get your courage up to, to go talk to somebody you don't know? Oh, absolutely. Or you just say, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? But I, I'm bad at that conversation. So I learned my first year I did do that, where I saw John Cleese there, who's one of my idols, and I asked if Matt, we- I think it was Matt Weiner, from the guy who created Mad Men, I was like, do you know John Cleese? <laughs> Can you introduce me? Oh, no, no. Matt Weiner introduced me to Sam Raimi. That was it. So, like, Matt Matt introduced me to Sam Raimi, and I was like, I was a PA on Spider-Man, and he, you're never going to believe this, he didn't remember that, uh, <laughs> which makes total sense. He was like, okay. And I was like, okay, well, bye. And then... Um, <laughs> That sounds like most of my interactions yeah. at the party. So now I'm yeah, feeling better. Yeah, exactly. Right now. I went. Hey, I was a PA. On, I was. Uh, I walked past you once in an airport, and they go, "Oh, I remember that." Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, John Cleese. I I met him, and I, I was so awkward, and and just immediately going in your brain, you know, that like abort, abort. You have nothing to say. You're, you're, you know, just walk away. You know. Was he kind and and fun? He was incredibly nice. You could tell he's had this conversation a billion times where some nerd comes up and is like, "I I saw Monty Python and it changed my life forever." You know, or whatever. But people must do that to you when people come up to you. What do they say? It's kind of more like I like SNL or the nice thing now people say, "Oh, I like Barry." That's a nice thing when people come up. But I don't think I've ever had a, I saw this and it changed my life, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, give it time. Give it time. So Barry, we love Barry and, and certainly are excited to see it in the Emmy conversation this year. Oh, yeah, it's cool. And I wanted to ask you, 
how did it come about? You and Alec Berg, I think I read you guys were set up by your agent and basically started talking, but how did the whole idea yeah. of the hitman who wants to be an actor, where did it all come from? Yeah, we would just meet up every week at a coffee shop because I had just finished SNL and I got this development deal with HBO and I just was, you know, I go, man, they gave me money to come up with a show. I got to come up with a show. Right. You know, it's HBO. And so uh, we had one idea that wasn't working and then I said, well out of frustration i kind of went well what if i was a hitman and he went oh i hate hitmen the skinny ties and the two guns and the slow motion and all that bullshit like i just don't like any of that and i went no no it'll be me and he went oh that's funny and i was like no but we should play it real you know and and um and we kind of talked about it in terms of well what if he was a marine and you know what's the real version of it I don't know how, but quickly we got to this idea that he would take an acting class. We thought, oh, it'd be interesting to take it like it's Taxi Driver. Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver found refuge with the people from Waiting for Guffman. So it'd be like if Travis Bickle walked into the Waiting for Guffman show and they said, okay, we'll put you in it. And I was like, yeah, that show, but play both of those realities. I think that's where the tone kind of comes from coming up you had joined second city for a while right did that sort of help inspire the acting class or was there anybody like the henry winkler character i never had a gene kusno in my life we went to like acting classes alec and i did and kind of sat in the back and watched people just how the class was run and then um we had a couple of acting teachers come and talk to the writers you know and just try to understand it. But no one like, you know, the, the Kusino character is very much a made up person. He's not based on anybody that we know. Right, right. And and how did you land on Henry Winkler playing that role? He's so amazing. He's hilarious. Yeah, he's phenomenal. I mean, that kind of came very naturally. It was funny. It was just kind of like, I can't explain it. But I said, oh, Henry Winkler in my head. And then Alec also was thinking of Henry. And then when we were meeting with casting directors to do the pilot, Sherry Thomas and Sharon Bialy came in to meet with us and they said, you know, we read the pilot and we were thinking, you know, the first person popped in our head was, was Henry Winkler. Wow. And I said, and I said, that's what I've been thinking. And then Henry came in and read for it. So it's like, I came into, you know, casting one day and there's a bunch of nervous actors out in the hallway. I've been there too, you know, going over their sides and stuff. And they're in the middle, there's Henry. And I just went, oh my God, what's he's reading? Like, why are you making him read for it? Yeah, why would just make, why, but he, I guess he had to read for it or I don't, I still don't really understand it, but he read for it and we were so nervous during his audition because Alec and I are such fans that I just was laughing the whole time. (laughs) Kind of, I just thought what he was doing was so funny, but I was so nervous and I wanted to read with him. And I just was kind of giggling the whole time. So I think he was like, oh, I'm killing it because Bill can't stop laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just nervous laughter. (laughs) No, it was genuine laughter. He was making me laugh really hard. And then what happened was, was he was so good in the first audition because it was all comedy that we liked him so much that, oh, you know, there's different levels to this character. We need to write a scene that's not funny. Um, so we just made up a couple of scenes where he's helping Barry with an audition, and I forget what the other one was, that were very um, much more dramatic. And also seeing him, the first audition was him bawling me out, and we wanted a, a scene where he uh, is being a good acting teacher. And so he came back and just knocked those out of the park. And what he did was, that character initially was much more art, was really arch. I mean, I think he had a cape in the first pilot, in the draft of the pilot, you know what I mean? He was kind of a John Barrymore, kind of like, get in here, now listen, you know, kind of that. It was way too arch. And when Henry read, he just brought this kind of empathy to the guy that then led to us creating scenes totally based on Henry's read of the character. Um, One of my favorite scenes in the show is when you see Kusno auditioning um, in episode four. And it's just, he's just a... He's just another actor, you know, and you just realize like, oh, he's just, he's just another, but in that room, he's king, but outside he's just a, another schmuck, you know, like the rest of us. And, um, and that would never have come if it wasn't 
what Henry brought to the role, we never would have written those scenes. Is it hard to get all these great actors to kind of do bad acting? Is it hard for you? It was hard for me. Other people could do it better. Sarah Goldberg's a genius at it. Darcy Carden was really good at it. I just took it as Barry has never acted, so the closest he had ever come to acting was, you know, in, in English class in eighth grade when they'd pass around, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, and you'd have to read two paragraphs of it, you know? Right, right, right. Like, that's probably the closest he has ever come to acting, so it's just reciting. yeah. So that's all. He's just saying words. He's just concentrating on getting his words right. He's not putting anything into it, you know. But everybody else ha- was doing these really cool, funny things. Yeah, the Shakespeare, the Shakespeare's like the Macbeth stuff. You just think this is a lot of wonderful bad acting happening on screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I and I thought what Sarah Goldberg did in Seven, where she does the bad version and then Barry comes and then she does the good version, is is was that's incredibly hard to do she made it look effortless so over time doing the show did you end up uh, relating to the sort of hitman life is there some kind of hidden connection between (laughs) acting and being a hitman i mean like i'm curious well yes i mean minus the murdering people um it, we kind of just took it as, you know, it's it's a dead-end job, you know? He has to, it's a lot of travel. <laughs> right. It's a lot of, and I relate to that, you know, traveling, and you're in a hotel, and, you know, I'm about to go shoot a movie in Toronto for two months, and I'm going to be in a, an apartment in a city that I don't know, and working 15-hour days and, you know, all that stuff. And so it's exciting, and it's fun, but it, it can be uh, uh, lonely, Right, right. I love how, you know, we mentioned your, your film buffness, and one of my favorite moments is the Yojimbo uh, reference where the cop <laughs> kind of suddenly brings up the Kurosawa movie out of nowhere. So is there any, are there any uh, films we should be watching to prepare for season two? Any, any deep cuts that oh, we that's should funny. dig up? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Season two, we're writing it right now, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, uh I mean, everybody should watch Kurosawa movies. I mean, that 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 came from Alec and I just being super goofy and tired, and the, we were doing a kind of a final rewrite on on a episode eight, just the two of us, and we started writing that scene, and and we just started going much like Yojimbo because we were just laughing at that. It's basically Yojimbo. What <laughs> right. what happened? <laughs> and. Uh, and then he actually typed it down. He actually typed it, and we started laughing really hard. And that was it. It was just like much like Yojimbo, and then the one reporter goes, can you spell Yojimbo, please? Um, and that was it. And then Alec, as kind of a Easter egg gift to me, without telling me, wrote the whole thing. So Gary Krause, who plays the, the chief, just delivered that whole thing. And I was laughing so hard when I saw that. I thought it was just hysterical. But movies to watch for season two, I mean, I don't know. I mean, any again, you can never go wrong with Kurosawa, you know, especially Yojimbo, Throwing Up Blood, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and uh, my favorite is Ikiru. I love that movie. And then, I mean, the big benchmarks for it, you know, again, Unforgiven was one. Um, Taxi Driver was another one. Waiting for Guffman and, and uh, Boogie Nights. Those were two that we watched. Paolo Widobro, the DP, and I, we watched uh, Ace in the Hole, the Billy Wilder movie, and, uh, and Double Indemnity for the coverage. Because we're TV and we don't have a lot of time, it was kind of, well, how can we... Simple dynamic coverage is what we would... That was the mantra during the shoot. So watching those films, I just how he would kind of seamlessly it didn't draw a lot of attention to itself but the shots were really great another one was asphalt jungle john houston and and, uh, maltese falcon for that uh, matter both of those are really well done those were kind of off top my head the the movies that you know we would kind of talk about and then uh there's more references in season two, but I, I don't want to say them because it might give away what we're doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Um, I mean, I love how L.A. kind of plays an interesting role in the show. I mean, do you, do you think about it as an L.A. show? I mean, obviously, yeah. that's part of what's what's happening to Barry. Yeah. The, 
Alec and I related to that. I moved to LA in 1999 with two friends, basically, but we didn't know anybody, you know, and, and just that feeling. And when I see LA stories, a lot of time it always focuses on the really cool part of LA. And we were like, we all lived in the valley, you know, <laughs> or, you know, and then I moved to a little efficiency apartment in Westwood by UCLA. So I, cause I wanted to walk to those movie theaters <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I don't have to drive everywhere. If I live by UCLA, cause Westwood village, I can just walk everywhere. That was my plan. Um, but, uh, but that feeling of, um, the strip malls and the valley and that area was kind of what we wanted to showcase more of. Yeah. It's interesting because given how many, what percentage of, you know, successful people in Hollywood have gone through the period of being starving, desperate actors, um, you don't actually see it portrayed that much on screen. It's kind of rare. Well, well, it's always portrayed as kind of like really awesome. They always want to show you like the cool (laughs) version of it. And then you get here and you're kind of like, oh, this isn't like that at all. It's kind of, that's why we liked, I thought Boogie Nights did a good job of just the valley, you know, of just that. Another movie I thought that shot the valley well was um, Nightcrawler. Yes. I thought they, that movie was really good. That that's I go, wow, that locations department did a great job because those are areas that I never see in movies of, of the city. Do you get back to Oklahoma much? You grew up in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't really because I have three small children here and I work a ton. So it's usually and also my family in, in Oklahoma always want to come here. <laughs> so it's always like if we're going to hang out, it's always like, well, how about we just come to you where the ocean is? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. One other movie I need to bring up is Office Space because uh, Stephen Root, who plays uh, oh, your, yeah. your boss, basically, is is I can't look at him without thinking about Milton and how, you the know, stapler, it, yeah. the stapler. <laughs> yeah. What was he like? How, how did it come together bringing him onto the show? I, oh, I've, I've been a fan of his for years i mean i remember seeing him on news radio and just being like well this guy is just doing something he's so natural and he's not pushing anything and it was just so kind of that was just a character that i knew from my life that i didn't see on television that much and then to know then to see him in office space and go wow this guy's got insane range you know and then you know, he's in great in those Coen Brothers movies and things like that. And so I've always wanted to work with him. And so when we wrote Fuchs, it was kind of, again, it was like that Henry Winkler thing where we were like, got to be great if this could be Steven Root. Right, right, right. And uh, he reacted well to the script, thank God, and we got him. And what about Hiro Mirai? You know, he's having such a moment with all the Donald Glover stuff, et cetera. Um, how, how did that come together? And what was it like working with him? Oh, he just came in. You know, I met with directors and... It was just like in an email saying, oh, you're going to meet with the director of Atlanta. And then I went, oh, cool. And I I, so I should probably watch this. So I'm like, oh, I'll watch an episode. And I ended up watching all of them like over a weekend. And I just was obsessed. So when he came in, I just went, okay, so you're a genius. <laughs> right. uh, you know, would you want to, you know, <laughs> would you want to work on this? Right. I remember pitching him the ending of episode six. I don't, I don't want to have any spoilers, but the ending of episode six of Barry's kind of ends on a crazy cliffhanger where we're all in this car. And I, I remember pitching him that I'm like, you know, you would direct an episode where this happens. And he went, Oh wow. And I, you know, I, I want to do that, you know? And, um, he was just great. He was so laid back, so cool, and just very, very sweet, very collaborative. Uh, but yeah, he's someone for season two. We were like, oh man, we're going to have to, how are we going to get Hero back on? This guy's, he's blowing up and, and, and rightfully so. I don't know. I don't know how we can get that guy back, but I'd love it if we could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think he's directing a, a, a movie like with the It Follows screenwriter or something. He's got, he got a bunch of stuff going on, obviously. Oh yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah. There's no way uh, you can hold that talent down. So, and nor should you. <laughs> Do you miss uh, doing SNL? I miss the people at SNL and I miss the actual moment of doing SNL, but the lead up to it, I don't like, I don't miss the, the stress of, I like kind of knowing what I'm doing. And so I would get very, uh, it's called anticipatory anxiety. I would get very, very anxious all week 
for the show. When I came back and hosted in March, I was, I just was so anxious all week. But then once the show gets going, I'm fine. But I don't, to answer your question, yes and no. But when did you live in New York when you were doing it? I did live in New York. Yes yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I was always a bit anxious. I was always anxious when I was there. And then you tell yourself like, oh, that's, that's part of your process. And then you go, no, it's, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I need to figure something out. So I started, you know, I meditated and, you know, worked out, switched from coffee to green tea. I mean, I did all these things to try to calm myself down when I was there. Just what what were you worried about? What were you afraid was going to happen? It's just you're you're performing something on live television and and I would usually have to do an impression or a voice and um and I have to read off cue cards. I'm not very good at um cold reading. And so I need to kind of run my stuff and especially when you're doing a voice, it's hard to kind of I just wanted to land everything if that makes sense. So I would just be kind of working really hard at it and 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 uh the the way the show works is they they come on and say hey this thing got cut in half for now your guy's from texas you know he's not from boston anymore and i've been working on a boston accent and they go he's from texas and i'm like oh shit you know so i go in and work really hard at the Texas. or you show up and they go hey can you do julian assange and i go uh no and it's like all right well you're doing him tonight <laughs> right you know, and so I had to run into my dressing room and work on Julian Assange or go work on um, James Carville. Same thing where the morning of wake up. Hey, we're you're doing James Carville on update. You better go figure him out. So, yeah, I, I think some people who are stand ups or were sketch performers who like being on stage uh, were very comfortable. Uh, I, I, I had just taken, you know, a year and a half of Second City classes and then I got stupid lucky and suddenly was on Saturday Night Live because Megan Mullally saw me in a show and recommended me to Lauren. So I, I had a giant learning curve of getting comfortable in front of an audience. Right, right. And uh, it took me a while. I got, I got better, but it, 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 uh, it, it was the live TV aspect of it. It was the, the red light goes on and the whole nation sees you aspect of it that I had a rough time with. Well, and, you know, a lot of people talk about the sort of like, how do you, what do you do after SNL? And it's, it's sort of like a, a trope, you know, that, that it's this difficult transition. But you've kind of had a parallel career going at least as far back as Superbad and you've done all this animated stuff. Did that, was, was that ever a worry for you or did you just think, no, I've got enough other stuff going on? I'm not, that doesn't apply. No, it, it was always a worry, you know, especially with when I left SNL, two kids and a third one on the way. You just go, okay, is that it? You know, <laughs> you know, <Right>. so <laughs> you just are, you know, and you move back to LA and you just are working as much as you can. You know, I, I wrote on South Park for a season just to, because I love it and I learn a lot, but they were also paying me. So it was, you know, just, I like working. So it was doing that stuff. And then uh, I read for Trainwreck. And Trainwreck was the thing that I, I read for that and got that movie. And then it was like, okay, good. I got this movie. It's a big studio movie. It's a big step forward for me of kind of the, the co-lead. And it's like a romantic comedy. And no one has ever thought of me in that way before in anything, you know. And then I had done a movie called Skeleton Twins with Kristen Wiig, which came out. And that was at Sundance, like right after I got SNL, right, right after I left SNL. So it was kind of a couple of things happened, at, you know, at once that, that, that helped that made me relax a bit. Right. Well, then following Trainwreck, uh, and I think also that film is mentioned in the the cut article about how hot you are. Have you read that? <laughs> Have you seen this uh, article? <laughs> no. No. No, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. What is the, what's that? What is that? I don't even know. Is that a website? The Cut is New York Magazine's uh, sort of style vertical. Oh. Bill Hader oh, wow. is dot, 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 totally kind of hot, question mark. <laughs> totally kind of hot. Oh, that's hilarious. Totally kind of hot. Yeah, you, you really need to read this. Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I've, since high school, I've got the like, my friends think it's so weird that I find you attractive. <laughs> <laughs> like every girl I dated was like, I don't know what's wrong with you, but 
sometimes you look cute and other times you look like a gargoyle and it's like oh nice thank you i, <laughs> I guess i appreciate that better than full gargoyle you know yeah yeah you're full gar- gargoyle or that's nice <laughs> well that's nice i mean that's flattering i mean i usually get hey aren't you dwight from the audience of the office <laughs> I'm like, no i'm not dwight from the office <laughs> or or michael shannon's the new one oh yeah michael shannon's the new one i've had a couple of people go shape of water was great man and i'm like okay <laughs> well you're both tall and i'm like do they think i'm michael shannon or do they think i'm the fish guy <laughs> that's what i'm trying to figure <laughs> out you know i wasn't the fish guy right i wasn't i would have nothing to do with that movie but thank you very much <laughs> um is it true that you're one of the voices for BB-8? So I was brought in for Star Wars Force Awakens by J.J. Abrams, and he said, hey, we're doing reshoots. Can you write some funny stuff, or can you, do you have any jokes? And I pitched some stuff. One of them ended up in the movie, which is the very beginning when Oscar Isaac says, who talks first? To It's at the very beginning of the movie. Anyway, but I, I like pitched that, and J.J. went, hey, that's in the movie. I went, oh, wow. <laughs> That's and then he went, cool. hey, while you're here, we have this character called BB-8. He's kind of like the new R2-D2. We don't have a sound for him yet. Do you want to try to do sounds for him? We had another actor do a voice for him, like actually spoke uh, English. But we're thinking now it should be more like R2, like beeps and stuff. So I did this thing, and it didn't work. And I went, all right, well, tried that. Um, that's cool. I got to see Star Wars. Well, what, what was it? What did you do? It, it sucked. I don't even want to replicate. I was trying <laughs> shit and it just didn't work. I think everybody was humoring me. They're like, we'll put it through like a thousand filters and then maybe it'll sound cool. Um, so then I, but I was like, oh, I got to see the new Star Wars, you know, in a rough form. That's kind of neat. And I added some jokes and I went home. And then um, a couple months later, like a month before the movie came out, JJ called me again and goes, hey, we figured it out. It's uh, the Peter Frampton talk box thing that you usually hook up to a guitar. We're going to hook it up to this iPad. And the iPad is going to have an app on it that makes weird robot sounds. And so you can manipulate the robot sounds with your voice. Do you want to do that? And so I came in and just watched the movie and just, you know, went like... <laughs> and just did that over the movie and jj was operating this app and doing different weird sounds on it and uh then they were like cool so that's bb8 and i went all right and then i went home (laughs) that's amazing that's pretty cool yeah it was kind of neat so are this like a is this like a long term thing? Will you will you no, do all no, BB eights no, no, going no, no, for it? No. I saw Ryan Johnson at a dinner once and I could I felt like the look on his face was like, Oh man, how do I tell him I I don't need him back for the new movie? <laughs> 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 We never mentioned it, but I was like, No, dude, it's fine. It's like anybody can do that. Literally anybody can do what I did on EBB eight. You just talk into this tube and JJ was just being nice and like brought me back in. <laughs> So anybody could do it. They should sell those. You could sell them and any kid can do the sound. Yeah, really? Uh, That's a good idea. This could be a little sideline for you. I guess uh, Kathleen Kennedy would have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Because you do a bunch of animated. I mean, you're like, that's that's a whole other career for you, right? I mean, are those fun? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I'm doing Angry Birds 2 and I just did a small part in Wreck-It Ralph 2. I love it, man. I, 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 cause I genuinely love those movies. And uh, is it less stressful? No, it, well, it's exhausting doing those. It's you end and your brain is just fried cause you're just, you know, you're just kind of shouting the same lines over and over again. It's a lot of fun though. And, uh, I love those movies. I'm, I'm taking my kids to see Incredibles two today, you know, and I mean, we're all, we watched Incredibles 1 last night. We're all getting pumped for it, so I'm, I'm excited. It's huge. Incredibles 2 is like a, is a giant Yeah, hit. man, I'm so excited <laughs> for it. All right, good. Well, I'll let you go so you can take the kids to see um, Incredibles oh, 2. But man. this is such a fun conversation. Thank yeah, you so dude, much no, for man. joining yeah, us. Thanks for, thanks for yeah, calling me. This is awesome. All right, cool. Good luck, and uh, and we'll hope to talk again soon. Yeah, hope to talk to you too, buddy.
That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week sharing some interviews for our 4th of July week episode. And then the week after that, we'll be handling the Emmy nominations live. So look forward to that. Uh, In the meantime, find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about a lot of television and many other things. Uh, You can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Joanna, Jarothis, and Richard. Rylaz. And Sonia. Sonia Soraya. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth and... The award this week for the best x 